Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground. The three spooked girls. Hey there, spooksters, and welcome to a very special episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is officially our two-year anniversary today. Like today. Yes, literally when this publishes. (laughs) Right? I'm so excited. I'm Jessica one of your co-hosts. And as always, I am joined by my favorite person in the world, Tara. Hi, Spooksters. And this week, we are very excited to be celebrating two years of the podcast. It's like mind-blowing that it's been two years. I know. I mean, we're a few days away right now in like real time, but like we're very, we're very excited about what's happening this week. So today is our two-year. Tomorrow is our live event. Mm-hmm. There might still be some general tickets available. There's zero VIP tickets. Oh, my God. That sold out. Thank you guys so much for that. Yes. And in celebration of two years, Tara and I have this fun tradition where, like, we just kind of give each other something, but we don't really talk about it. <laughs> like, last year, I sent her a cookie jar. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> I didn't even say, like, I don't even think I wrote anything like, happy two years. I think you just got a Jack Skellington cookie jar and you just kind of knew. But this year, because, you know, Tara and I are on TikTok now, we send each other a lot of TikToks before we started doing them. And Tara used to get a ton of this girl by the name of Sarah Hester Ross, who I am fucking obsessed with. She's beautiful and amazing and I love her content. She does a ton of singing. So I went out on a limb and I asked her if she did commission work and she does. And it is like the best money I have ever spent because the song she wrote us was amazing, which is what you heard when you were getting into this episode. So thank you, Sarah, so much. It's amazing. Oh, my God. I was going to plan on waiting to, like, surprise Tara with this tomorrow during the live. But Tara and I have a rule that we're not allowed to, like, make each other emotional on camera. Yes, because I cried. It was amazing. Like, as someone who, like, thrives on gift giving, like, it is a competition in my world. (laughs) Like, just because I'm like that person who has to be extra. I I was like, oh, what if she's just like, that's cool. And so when she cried, I was like, yes, (laughs) I did it. Basically, if you guys ever wondered what a real life Leslie Nope is like, it is Jessica. (laughs) And she's waving and you can't see. Yeah. No, seriously, Leslie Nope is my spirit animal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. It's so amazing. And you guys feel free to let us know what you think. It was just so amazing. I love it. And 
it's just mind-blowing to me that this is two years of going on, and I just want to say thank you to all of you, especially you OG people like Caitlin and Ross and Laura and all you guys know who you are who have been there since like our Skype days (laughs) and like our weird changes and everything who's grown with us and we see you and we really, really appreciate it. And all of you new spooksters, because our growth from not that anybody cares besides me who looks at numbers all the time. <laughs> Our growth from last year to this year has been fucking insane. So thank you guys so much. Because of you, we've had so many opportunities. And actually, when you're hearing this, we will have been up stupid early because we actually were invited to be on a true crime segment on live radio. It's East Coast time. So that's why I say stupid early because I am four hours behind East Coast time. But it's so worth it. Right. So that's what's happening right now. So we are probably like extra caffeined up slash napping, but not don't tell anybody we're napping. Oh, no, no napping for me. I got to go in the office that day. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) I have decided that it's like I'm going to get two pumpkin cold brews that day and drink them both very quickly. But yeah, and then thank you to you, Jessica, for not thinking this idea would be fucking stupid (laughs) and agreeing to go along with this with me, even though, I mean, neither of us really knew what podcasting would entail. Right. But here we are. So yeah, I don't want to say too much because I'll cry and I don't like listening to myself cry. And then I'll make everybody else cry again. Great. If you missed that, go find Aaron Hernandez. Have fun crying. I think it's interesting that like we both cried on the podcast and it's, I don't know, like I am so grateful that Tara did ask me because like looking back like two years ago, like if you don't know, if you're new and you don't know the story about how it happened, I got married in 2018 and in August was like the first time in three years Tara and I had seen each other face to face was at my bachelorette party. We talked all the time. We like call each other on Facebook Messenger all the time. Like we see each other physically through the phone. I should say not physically. We see each other through the phone all the time. But like we hadn't seen each other in three years. And I was just like so excited. We were running around Disney for my bachelorette party. And then Tara and I stayed a couple extra days. And this whole time, and it was like me and her sister M and just the three of us like in Disney and Tara didn't say anything. We had a big fancy dinner. We like hung out at the airport for like an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Just like nothing. And then it was like two days later, I'm at work and I get this like text message from Tara and I was like, hey, I don't know if you're going to think this is weird, (laughs) but... And at first I was like, the narcissist in me was like, fuck yeah, like (laughs) I can go talk to people. And then like the other like self-conscious person inside was like, I have a weird voice. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're cool with my weird voice, like I'm fine with it. And so I'm so happy. And yes, thank you guys for being a part of this. You Spooksters are our family. We love you. Yeah. So yeah, thank you guys so much. Like we definitely can just not explain how much you mean to us and honestly it's not even sounding dramatic or (laughs) anything but you've changed our lives so we just we are so grateful we are so grateful and here's to many more years of spooky and true crime content for sure and i want to do one more thank you and that's to our husbands Mm -hmm. to matt and thomas because they have been the most supportive 
husbands behind this. Like Tara and I, we've gone on trips and just been like, bye, you're not coming with us. We're going without you. (laughs) We record multiple nights a week, you know, and they have been so supportive. Like we joke that Matt's our intern, but like he's super creative. So he's very helpful. And like Thomas is very like, he thinks about the numbers. So he helps us in that aspect. So I don't know. Like, I'll tell Thomas to listen, but like, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. And thank you, Matthew, because like, literally, without their support, this would be very hard. For sure. I feel like we won't get too into it, but that's a huge thing. If you're someone listening and thinking of starting a podcast, like, it is such a time commitment. Definitely talk to your partners, people in your life about that time commitment because it is huge. And there's, you know, everyone has like good and bad days. And there's days where it's like, we're human. So like, say somebody leaves a mean comment or a mean review, you know, there's days when it's caught you at a bad time. And they're just there to, you know, pick you up and be like, no, because they remind you, like, look at all this stuff. And we share stories of people's, you know, like family members and things like that. And we just do what we can to do good with our platform. Mm-hmm. We done talking about feelings now. So that's a long, well, it'll be edited down. But <laughs> in our time, it's a 12 minute thank you. So um, yeah, Jess, what are we talking about today? <laughs> so this episode is a patron select. So it was picked by our patron, Nikki. And it is a case that I had not heard of. It is called the Adelaide Family Murders. And it's not a family that got murdered. Oh, God. Spoiler. Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Like, I was thinking this is like Amityville or something like that. You know, no, mm -mm, not that. Not that at all. So it's okay. Oh, boy. It's okay. We're fine. Okay. So Adelaide is where it's located, which is in Southern Australia. The Family Murders is the name of a series of murders committed by a close-knit group of individuals known as the family. So that kind of sounds familiar. I don't know if anyone knows. Kind of culty-ish. Hi, Charles Manson. (laughs) Yeah. Except for, like, not Charles Manson. Like, I would take Charles Manson over these assholes any day. Oh, God. That says a lot. Right. Because like Charles Manson just wanted to like, you know, change the world and he killed people. These people like sexually abused teenage boys and young men. So. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, Charles Manson like brainwashed people, but like I have a real issue with sexual assault. So anyway. Yes. So this group is believed to be involved in the kidnapping, sexual abuse and torture of teenage boys in the Southern Australia region of Adelaide during the 1970s and 1980s, especially between 1979 and 1983. Police believe that there's up to 12 people in this family and several of them are high-profile Australians who are involved in these kidnappings. So I want to say this. During this particular time in Australia, being gay or having homosexual relationships was illegal. Oh. Yeah, that's what I read. Mm. So basically, that community was very, like, close-knit because they couldn't be out. So it was a very tumultuous time to be gay in Australia because... You were literally putting your life in your hands because it was illegal. Mm. But that's not what this story is really about. 
In June of 1979, June 18th to be exact, Alan Arthur Barnes, who was age 16, was abducted and murdered. He was last seen being picked up in a white Holden sedan carrying three or four people while hitchhiking. Six days would pass until they would find his body and it was severely mutilated and dumped in the South Para Reservoir in Northeast Adelaide. A post-mortem exam, so an autopsy, revealed that Alan had died of massive blood loss. This is triggering, so please know this. Massive blood loss from an injury to his rectal cavity that was caused by the insertion of a large blunt object. His body also showed signs of beating and torture, and a drug called Noctic was found in his bloodstream, suggesting that he had been drugged. Which, when I read that, I was like, I really hope, I really hope he was drugged. Yeah. A little over two months later, Neil Frederick Murr, age 25, would disappear on August 28th, 1979. He was last seen being ejected from a club by a bouncer. It is noted that he, from time to time, would work as a sex worker, and he actually didn't have, like, a fixed address, which would make him a very, like, high-risk abductee because of his transient lifestyle. Not having, like, a fixed address probably meant somebody wasn't checking up on him every single day. But his body was found on August 29th. His remains had been dissected and neatly cut into many pieces and placed in garbage bags and then thrown in the Port River at Port Adelaide. The skin bearing his tattoos had been removed and most body parts were placed in another garbage bag before being placed within the abdominal cavity. The head was tied to the torso with a rope that was passed through the mouth through the neck. Oh, my God. Normally, I wouldn't. I would just be like, he was tortured, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I really want you guys to think about, like, the level of fucking sadistic torture this asshole, these assholes did. So it wasn't just, like, some people got, like, carried away while having rough sex. Like, it's fucking insane. And when they did the autopsy, again, it was the same reason that Alan had passed. Mm -hmm. And then they found the same drugs in his system as Alan. Next would be Peter Stogniff. Stognoff, I apologize if I say that wrong. He was 14. Oh. So he a baby. He skipped school on August 27th, 1981. They would find his remains in October. A local farmer about 50 kilometers away from Adelaide was out, you know, working. Like I grew up on a farm and you have like burn piles. So he was out in this like burning shrubbery and stuff out there and he came upon Peter's burnt remains. And that was, they found them in October of 1982. So it had been like over a year since he had disappeared. Next would be Mark Andrew Langley. He was age 18. On February 27th, 1982, he got into an argument with his friends and basically the car pulled over and he got out and his friends like drove off without him. So that was like the last time anyone had seen him. His body would be found mutilated in scrubs in the foothills nine days after he disappeared. Again, he was cut, which was like surgical accuracy with surgical instruments. And basically, it was from like his navel to his private region. And then his small intestines were missing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Again, the cause of death was... The same. Yeah, it was the same. 
So then the next one is Richard Dallas Kelvin. Um, and he was born on December 4th, 1964. And so he was age 15 in 1983. He was the son of local Nine Network News presenter Rob Kelvin. And he was abducted a short distance from his home. The story is about 6.15 approximately on June 5th, 1983. He was walking a friend to a bus stop. And when he did that, he was on his way home for dinner because his mom had like set dinner out. He had been hanging out with his friends. So he was really excited. He was going home. And then like people in the area heard like a car pull over, a kid screaming, some people scuffling, and then a car like speed off really loud. And they said that the muffler was like really rattly and loud. And he wouldn't be found until July 24th, 1983. Basically, a family was out like looking, like searching this like rock area by an airstrip, which I only say this because the airstrip was called One Tree Hill. So then I like giggled because of the TV show. And I was like, this is nothing like that. Um, (laughs) This is nothing like that. But um, so he had been held captive for over five weeks. And post-mortem examination, so autopsy, revealed that he had died from massive blood loss from, we know where this is going. And it had been a large blunt object, but this time they had a little bit more of a detail of it. They said it had a tapered neck, so they were thinking something like a beer bottle. Analysis of Richard's bloodstream would reveal that he had traces of four hypnotic drugs in his system, including Mandrix and Noctec, which Noctec was in the other victims. So there's a consistency here. And his body had a ton of hair and fibers all over him that were foreign to him that like didn't come from his home. So they were like, okay, this kid was definitely abducted. So the police in this instance did a really great thing. Once they ran the autopsy and they found the drugs in their system, they immediately started looking into who had access to these drugs because they were prescription drugs. So they ran it and the name of Bevan Spencer Von Einem came up. Bevan, he was not a good person, even though like, I don't know. He had been suspected in the other four murders, but, like, there was no evidence of it, so they couldn't really do anything. But his name kept popping up. He had, there had been, like, an area at, like, a local park. They would go and, like, because, again, it was illegal for them to engage in homosexual relationships. So they would go and hang out at this area. And basically one guy was like attacked and like drowned and another guy had his leg broken and Bevan like showed up to help and was like a good Samaritan. So they like the police definitely knew who he was and they thought he was part of this family, but they had no proof. On July 28th, so four days after Richard's body was found, they questioned Bevan And he initially claimed that he had never met Richard and hadn't seen him and had no knowledge of his whereabouts and stated that the night he was abducted, that Bevan was at home in bed with the flu and was off work for the next week. And his mother would back up his story. So the police searched his home and at first he was like, "Mm mm-mm, but then he was like, fine. And they took samples, they took blood samples and hair samples and samples of fibers from his his house because obviously like Richard had a ton of like fibers all over him. So there was three major factors in why Bevan was initially questioned. 
When the police knocked on the door and inquired whether they could ask a few questions, he immediately reacted like, fuck no, I'm going to need a lawyer. And the police were like, okay, he's trying to hide something. Then when questioned about Richard's murder, rather than profusely denying the involvement, he simply said that he would not do such a thing because it was unethical. It's a lot more than unethical. <laughs> like it's unethical to take like $5 from your brother's piggy bank. Killing someone is a lot more than just unethical. And most people who like are innocent are going to be like, oh my God, no, they're no, did not do this. Right. And then obviously the drugs, like he admitted to having them. And when they would go back and look at like his prescriptions during that time, during the times of all the murders, he was prescribed those particular drugs. So he had access to them. So law enforcement was like, he seems like our dude. Well, Bevin then left the country for a little bit, not forever. He was gone for two months. He went to the Soviet Union and then the UK. And during this time, the police had access to his home and all of this stuff because, you know, they had warrants. And they basically, oh my God, they got so much evidence. But they also were like, how could one man commit this? Like, you look back at like the different murders that had happened because they were trying to like put them all together. Mm -hmm. It seemed like you would need more than one person to pull these off. And because of the fact that like there was such a very specific cause of death, very specific. Mm -hmm. And about this time, a man who the police called Mr. B was located and informed the police in great detail that he and Bevan had picked up young men and hitchhikers, had given them alcoholic drinks laced with hypnotic drugs, and had taken them back to Bevan's home, uh, previous home in the Adelaide suburbs of Campbelltown, where the young men were abused overnight and then released the next day. So this guy is like, yeah, we used basically admitting to rape. Don't understand why he was not arrested. Mr. B would provide further information on other associates, but they didn't really have, like, concrete evidence to tie them to these murders. The police questioned all the people who were associates, but, I mean, if you were being accused of murder, would you give up any information? No. Right. So they'd collected enough evidence from Richard's body and then Bevan's house. And then with the testimony of Mr. B, they were able to implicate Bevan in the death of Richard. And so he was arrested on November 3rd, 1983. At this time, he's still denying, like, adamantly that he had nothing to do with Richard's death. On February 20th of 1984, they established that there was enough evidence to go to trial. And basically at this point, like... Bevan is looking at all this fucking evidence that they have against him, and he kind of changes his story, and he changed it to this. Basically, he said he was driving down O'Connell Street in North Adelaide, and he was, like, looking for a parking spot because he wanted to buy some fish and chips for dinner. And so when he was driving, he came upon Richard, who, I guess, like, jogged beside him. And according to Bevan, he could tell that Richard was bisexual. I don't know what that means, but that's what he said. And he said that the two started a conversation and basically he was talking about all like Richard kind of opened up about his problems at home that he was having at school. And so then Richard willingly got into his car and then drove to Bevan's house and they spent a couple hours and they hung out. So this was how Bevan was like, look, he got all these fibers on him because he was in the house. He also said that the reason why they were sitting on his bed and the fibers came from his bed, because remember, he's like a 15-year-old dude and this guy is like old, was that Bevan had this golden harp, which the police had in evidence, and that they were playing it, so they had to sit on the bed to play it. 
And so basically at this point in time, he's like, that's how the fibers got there. And after a couple hours, I basically took him to the Adelaide CBD and dropped him off near the Royal Adelaide Hospital and gave him $20 for a taxi home, which like, dude, why didn't you just drive him home? And then he's saying that, so he dropped him off and he must be have been abducted right after that. There was a lot of holes in his story because it's like very not understandable how this happened. And basically, even though his mother was as an al- his alibi, it wasn't strong enough to like get him released. So on May 25th, 1984, Magistrate Nick Manos ordered that Bevan stand trial for the murder of Richard. And then we go to trial. On October 15th, 1984, it was presided over by Mr. Justice White, which I was like, that's a fancy way because we say judge. And it had a jury of 12 people, seven women, and five men. Obviously, Bevan said he wasn't guilty. Mm -hmm. With the jury, they actually would take them to various sites around Adelaide that were important to the trial. So field trip. (laughs) And then they would call over the first week. They would also call various witnesses, including Richard's parents, his girlfriend, his best friend, that all could attest that Richard was an average 15-year-old boy who identified as a boy. And was not willing to get into cars with strangers. Also that he was heterosexual and with no homosexual or bisexual tendencies. So it's like if people that are that close to him are like, we never saw it. He never expressed it. How is a stranger who saw him jogging next to his car just know? I mean, I have heard of Gaydar, but I don't think it works like that. Also, they brought in the people who lived in the area that heard the commotion and could basically say, like, this is about the time it happened. We heard him struggle. We heard him yelling for help. We heard the car door slam and that stuff. A forensic pathologist was called to testify to the injuries to Richard's head and to his anus, which caused death because he also had injuries to his, like, head and, like, upper extremities. It was very sad. He had been very much tortured. A pharmacist gave evidence of the excessive amount of hypnotic drugs and that they they had been prescribed to Bevan during the time. So from like December of 1978 to August of 1983, he had been prescribed 5,872 tablets and capsules of six different brands of drugs. That's a fuck ton. Oh my God. Yeah. Like that's the accurate description of a fuck ton. Literally. And had showed that during the times where this murder had happened, that he had had access to those two drugs. And various police, because they had done so much, like, investigating, they came in and testified how they had, like, interviewed him and questioned him about the murder, as well as they talked about visiting the home and noticed that Bevan's house seemed like it had been cleaned excessively. A forensic scientist had come in to give evidence about when he had died, because, and it was like they actually found the body of a dog that had passed away nearby, and so they could link up the, like, the larval state, so they knew that he had actually been dumped on July 10th, or it was basically between the 9th and the 11th of July. And also, okay, ready for this. Strap in. Another forensic scientist was called in to testify on the hair and fiber samples that were collected that linked him to Richard. And on Richard's body, they found 925 fiber samples on his clothing. 250 of those came from Bevan's home. Seven of them came from Richard's home. Wow. So like gives you perspective. And they basically said that there was no way that like two hours of like being there would cause that much exposure. And he would have to be there, I think, 
Let's see. Some of the samples were like 36 hours old and some of them were like five weeks old, if I'm reading this right. So basically, it's like, holy shit, this is pretty damning evidence. But he still maintained that he was innocent and they... He actually didn't testify, like Bevan didn't testify in court. He would just gave an unsworn statement about like where he was, the fact that he had an alibi, that he was sick, that he took time off of work, which I'm sorry, but like, I would think that if you were torturing a 15 year old boy, you would need to take time off of work because it probably would get in your schedule. He also said that he couldn't have dropped or he couldn't have dumped the body on July 10th because he went to like a birthday party and hung out with his mom and then went to bed and that he has like witnesses, but like it wasn't like someone watched him 24 hours a day. And obviously the defense was still trying to go along with the fact that like, obviously they were like, yes, Bevan had been around him, but he let him go, like not let him go, but you know what I'm saying? Like he had dropped him off and then someone else had abducted him. But the jury did not believe him because it only took him seven and a half hours to deliberate. And they basically turned around and said he's guilty for the murder and was automatically sentenced to life at the Yatala Labor Prison. And Mr. Justice White imposed a non-parole period of 24 years. So he had to go 24 years before he could get paroled, which would have been 1999. In February of 1988, basically, they started looking into his connection with all the other murders, and they tried to take him to court. By March of 2008, they were giving, like, the reward for leading to an arrest was a million dollars. So they were trying to like entice someone to give everyone else up because they obviously knew like he was part of this family, the group, but they didn't know who was else. And like they thought that, okay, there had to be all these other people involved. They tried to take him to court for Alan and Mark, so Barnes and Langley, but it was basically dismissed because they didn't have accurate or they didn't have enough evidence to actually like convey other than like cause of death. But it's like crazy because at this point, they think that doctors and lawyers and like upstanding citizens belong to this group and there's no excuse for it like there's fucking no excuse for it but so he obviously didn't make parole you know in 1999 and in 2007 so in june of 2007 he was actually caught and charged with producing and possessing child pornography and you're like how he's in prison he had three fictitious stories describing sexual acts between a child and a man so that's porn people child porn and he basically got his sentence like they had to drop the producing part because a handwriting analysis basically determined that it wasn't his handwriting and that his fingerprints weren't the only ones on there i don't know who they were he got three extra months that's it three extra months i mean granted he's spending the rest of his life in jail most likely because like their version of the da is like fuck him He's going to stay where he's at. He was also, he got extra time. He didn't make parole because he was accused of raping a fellow inmate while in prison. So this story is super frustrating because we have all this information on Bevan and like all the terrible shit he did to Richard. But like there's this other guy. He's the brother of a famous like Olympian. um, And I'm pretty sure he's Mr. B. But he basically came out. There's I couldn't find it because I don't live in Australia. But there's this woman who did this series a couple years ago called The Frozen Files and is basically all about this. And I would love to watch it. So if anyone has a link to it, (laughs) I like searched high and low, couldn't find it. Basically, it's she interviews him and he's like, yeah, he would like come over to my house with these people. And then we would, you know, and so she basically was like, 
I loved the expression she used. She said, don't wallpaper it in. And I was like, that's, I like that. She said, don't wallpaper it in. And he's like, yeah, no, we would have sex with them. He admits to it, but they uh, obviously never admit to the murder. And he did say in that interview that he feels guilty because like he felt like maybe he should have done more back then. He said, like, the guy would show up with a kid or with the person. And then I'm assuming, like, the Jeffrey Dahmer, like, drugged state, you know, like, they didn't have enough. They couldn't really fight back. And that they would come party. And then all of a sudden they would just be gone. And then, like, a few days later, they'd be on the news. And he would always deny it. Like, oh, I didn't do it. Someone else must have done it. But, like, some of these were, like, they were abducted one day and found the next day. So, like, I don't know how he'd get away with that. Yeah. So it's a it's definitely an interesting case. It's frustrating because I feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions and there's probably a lot more victims that we just don't know about. Because like if you think about predators, they look for like high risk victims because they're runaways or they they're transient and they don't have someone looking for them on a daily basis. So it's frustrating and super fucked up. So that concludes today's episode. (laughs) If you are going to join us for the live tomorrow, just as a reminder that your link will be sent or should you should be receiving your link to either today or earlier tomorrow, most likely today, just depending on when you check your email for the live event. And if you bought VIP tickets, make sure to check your email twice because you will have a second link in there. So we look forward to that and we will see you back here on Monday for a full episode. Bye. Bye, guys.